Nation, Rob McGregor, welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor and and Trish McGregor <clears throat> and our tech magician <clears throat> producer John Posey. You can go to the mysticalunderground.com where we make regular blog posts and uh, where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is The Shift: Reports from the Mystical Underground. Trish's latest novel is White Crows, and Rob's latest novel is Tulpas. Now available in. <clears throat> Audio as well as print and ebook. We have two guests today who have both appeared here separately. Uh, the first is Jude Kurvan, uh, a PhD, is a key cosmologist, futurist, planetary healer, member of the Evolutionary Leader Circus, and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford and a doctorate in archaeology from the University of Reading. She has traveled extensively, <clears throat> worked with wisdom keepers from many traditions, and is a lifelong researcher into the nature of reality. She's the author of six books, The Cosmic Hologram, and her newest book is The Story of Gaia, The Big Breath, and the Evolutionary Journey of Our Conscious Planet. Okay, our other guest today is Andrew McPherson, a world-renowned <clears throat> photographer. He has worked for top fashion magazines such as Vogue and Bazaar. His work has regularly appeared on albums and magazine covers and movie posters. He's also the author of A Quest of Spirit, about his exploration of the spirit world. While he has some was he's had some mystical experiences as a child. It was after he turned 26 when a floodgate of experiences and dreams and wild synchronicities opened his eyes to the mystery of spirit. Welcome back, both of you. Thank you. Great. I've been looking so forward to this. <laughs> yeah, we've tried to get this uh, <laughs> together a couple of times and uh, different aspects of life interfered, but now here we are. <laughs> Okay. And it's great Jude. to meet you, Andrew. I'm so excited about <laughs> this exploration yeah. together. Yeah. Okay. Jude, I, I get the first one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. From a cosmological perspective, what is synchronicity? I mean, how does it work according to cosmological order? Well, the old paradigm of the cosmos couldn't incorporate it. It couldn't incorporate uh -huh. the sort of experiences that Andrew and I've had over many years of what we call perhaps, Andrew, you might refer to them too as supernormal, not supernatural or paranormal, but mm. supernormal phenomena, because the old paradigm of, of our universe was essentially materialistic and based on separation. And even though we had the clues from 20th century science of quantum physics and relativity physics, it's only very much more recently that by incorporating the concept of meaningful information and what's called the holographic principle mm -hmm. is that an emergent cosmology of a living and evolving universe that essentially does so as a non-locally unified entity means that although within space-time the speed of light is the cosmic speed cop uh, for any signaling, mm -hmm. Our universe, by existing and evolving as a non-locally unified entity, knows itself in its entirety. And so phenomena such as synchronicities, which don't violate causality within space-time, nonetheless bring that non-local reality into a moment, into a here and now, which in, of its nature has intrinsic meaning. Yeah, it seems like uh, wow. synchronicity is like right on the border between our material world and the the deeper reality, uh, and we, that's how we can reflect uh, on it and look uh, look into the the deeper side. Exactly, and you know, more the more we're realizing, you know, that that sense of material reality and deeper. Again, we sort of have this duality based. 
Um, it's rather more like, you know, a, a, an ongoing uh, notes in a piano. But yes, you're absolutely right, Rob. <laughs> what appears in what we call the what, what is the appearance of our universe, it's energy, matter, space, time, indeed does arise from those deeper levels of causation and meaningfully and imbued with, with universal and cosmic and, you know, co-creative intelligence. So synchronicities are wonderful way showers. Yeah. Um, arising from that deeper meaning. I'd like to bring Andrew in here. Andrew, you've been on this quest uh, <laughs> regarding spirit for a long time. In your mid-20s, you had some experiences <laughs> that uh, woke you up to the reality of existence beyond the five senses. Could you talk about that, in particular, your astonishing interaction with a deceased person? And when we had you on before, it was something we didn't get to, which was, uh, I don't know why, uh, because there was so much else to talk about. But uh, could you uh, talk a little bit about that experience? Yes, and it it actually relates, Jude, to, you know, you talked about, um, you actually, at one point in the book, talk about the unitive narrative, but you also do talk about your own experiences with spirit, with seeing things in nature, with seeing the life in plants and, and the energies of plants. Those are all things that um, I've experienced. But, it, you know, it really began I'm when I came to Los Angeles, um, I I... I met a girl and who and we fell in love, but he, she had had a husband who had taken his own life a year before because he had bipolar disorder. Um, and I then, you know, when I first went to her apartment, I realized he was there and I would just talk to him like like a friend and say, you know, I don't mean any harm. I'm just, you know, and then he, he was with me for about 15, 20 years and a a wow. huge, I put a huge amount of the luck and the extraordinary things that have happened to me in Los Angeles down to his uh, kindness, his guidance. I I got to do a lot of the things I know he would have loved to have done. And I really do, you know, very much believe that he was a part of it. And um, a, a quick story, but I don't want to go too deep in my story because I've got so many questions for Jude. <laughs> <laughs> I want to learn. Um <laughs> But, but yeah, I did have an experience where I had, um, because I've always been on this path, whenever I hear of a psychic or a medium, I, I want to see them. So I had a psychic come here and he said to me, you know, one of the things he said during our meeting was, you're going to photograph the spirits, but you're going to you're going to think it's something wrong with your equipment, but it's not. Well, about six, seven months later, I was doing a shoot for um, English L magazine at that point with and the model came to the house. We shot at my house here in Los Angeles. She came to the house. She walked in and she said, oh, the spirits here. In the <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's John. Don't worry. And for two days, she proceeded to have a conversation with John, and it was no question, it was him, everything checked out, because obviously I could ring his ex-wife and say, listen, John said this, 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 and this, does this make sense? Everything checked out. But on the film, there were all these streaks of light all over the film. And back in those days, we were doing Polaroids, and the Polaroids were huh. covered in streaks of light, never seen it before. And it was, you know, it was literally framing this girl, these incredible streaks of light. And, um, so that was, you know, my experience of photographing spirit. But to jump back to what where your question, Trish, I had a similar question, which was about deja vu, which I think links uh -huh. to synchronicity. And again, I was I wondering too. if deja vu is in some way, because you talk about the fractal unfolding, if you will, the chaos theory patterns that were the Mandelbrot patterns we're familiar with. Do you think that, I've, you know, I've always tried to understand deja vu. Do you think it could be echoes within those unfolding patterns? Uh, yeah, Andrew, oh, that's story. And, and I've had many, many experiences of, of uh, engaging, communicating with dead folks as well. And, and, you know, beyond, beyond sort of any doubt, that our consciousness continues beyond the demise of our, our physical bodies. You know, I've worked with ancestors over many years who told me so much. And I don't know if you're finding this, but just to, to divert slightly, because I think this is important. I'm very much sensing and have done for the last sort of 25, 30 years that the ancestors are coming forward. We're not going back. They're coming forward. 
And I get this whole mm. sense of, you know, the, 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 this in great convergence of our universal story and, and this evolutionary leap with so much support on so many levels, but very much the ancestors, you know, coming forward to add their support in all of this. Huh. Um, so, yeah, so so just in the point of, of the deja vu and, and also just to say that we don't tend to use the word chaos theory anymore. Mm-hmm. Some years ago, it was realized that what appeared as chaos often um, underpinning it was, was underlying order. So it's rather more called now complexity theory, this realization mm-hmm. of that, you know, the innate, meaningfully informed nature of all phenomena. So, so, um, but in terms of complexity, you're absolutely right, Andrew, those patterns going forward. So yeah, for me, deja vu is like those, those ripples, those memories. Um, and again, there's uh-huh. no, no violation of causality within space time. This is what I keep coming back to because, you know, sometimes we, we think there might be with supernormal phenomena, but none that mm-hmm. I've researched and other researchers have come across, I think in the last 40, 50 years, um, really, when they're when they're really drilled into and understood what's going on, none of them violate that universal causality within space time. So, in no, truth, I, uh, go ahead, Andrew. You want to say something? Go ahead. I was I was going to say go what ahead. you said about the ancestors. On another, I've actually been emailing with Trish about some visions I've had since we I discovered you through the, the 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 mystic underground and since we've started um talking and it is very much i've been shown the difference between the forces of dark and the forces of light and i very much have been called to stand up and be counted and so when you're talking about the ancestors i have become aware there is a really dark force trying to 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 have its way with civilization or with the planet or with consciousness i'm not even quite sure what it is but how i've been showing it is literally it is eating souls it it lives on the energy of ah. broken souls so it's quite a it's a quite a shocking startling image and um you know obviously is we, that anse- it's not ancestral though is it no it's more archetypal no. I, I would suggest andrew you probably feel it's more archetypal yeah Absolutely. It's very Uh archetypal. And I I don't, you know, but I wanted to, you you know, I wanted you to also discuss your um, clairaudience experience. I put down here of the age of remembering. So you, you, you talked about that. And that's something I would love you to expand on because I, I, my sense is there's something very important there. Well, to to, to open that up, the two things, I think one is your first point about this sort of sense of darkness and light. And I've too been aware of this from a very, very early age. But around, let me think, 22, 22 years ago, 21 years ago, I was leading the first of what became 13 global journeys called, that I wrote about in a book called The 13th Step. I didn't really mean to write a book, but after those journeys were completed, it turned out they complete in 2007, I was invited to, to write a book, two books actually, one on the inner transformational journey one on the the sort of the journey journey the the, the sort of schlepping around the, the the globe on these amazing journeys but the first of those journeys for me was key because um just before we went i had been invited to lead a, heal, a healing circle into a very very disrupted energy field in the center of of england and mm. it was a few days before we were going to go to this journey to egypt and I came down with 24-hour flu, which I never come, I never, you know, I'm, I'm touch wood. I'm very rarely sick. <laughs> but I came down just before this healing circle was meant to, to go to this particular place. So they went without me and they encountered a huge darkness. Huh. And they were very frightened and they retreated, which was very sensible of them to do, and asked if I could help. And I said, well, not until I come back from this journey to Egypt. So anyway, we went on the journey to Egypt, and I think there was something like 26 of us on that trip. And it turned out that it became a mass life regression. Mm. Wow. Literally, it was a group consciousness experience 
through this journey of, of a regression into a life lived in ancient Egypt. And I do write about it in the book. So I'm not sort of saying anything that, you know, hasn't already mm-hmm. been, been written about. <clears throat> but what the, the long story short, the story was of an order, a priestly order of light and a priestly order of shadow. Mm-hmm. And the the priestly order of shadow was really moving more and more into the shadow from a place of ego and became progressively lost. Okay. Mm. It wasn't intentionally evil to begin with, but evil, if you turn it upside down, is live. So it was moving more and more away from a living mm. appreciation of wholeness into this loneliness of, of shadow and this ego uh, sense of shadow. But then what happened? is the priesthood of the light dis- began to judge the shadow. Mm-hmm. Huh. And what that did, instead of healing the shadow and enabling it to be reintegrated, the duality pushed, pushed, pushed it further and further. And the whole story played out not in that particular lifetime, but in the whole history, you know, the thread, wow. history and, and incarnational experiences of people on that trip till wow. now. So it was the most extraordinary experience and the most extraordinary healing experience. But I came back from that journey realizing that if I judged the shadow, doesn't mean I don't discern Mm -hmm. and say this doesn't feel right. This is a this is a place that is not fulfilling, you know, the wholeness of life. And what Mm -hmm. can I do about it? How can I serve that healing? But it's not to judge it and continue that play out of duality. So. A few days after we got back, myself, another of the folks who were on the Egypt journey, joined the the rest of the healing circle at this place where they'd entered into this field of fear. And it turned out that it went back to um, the time in, in England where there were witch, what's called witch finder generals. And these folks went around and identified witches and had them tortured and killed and all huh. the rest of and this was a witch finder general or the spirit of a witch finder general who'd gone down that shadow route from a place of ego and now was very, very powerful in his own sense. He was a legend in his own lunchtime, as we say here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> but he, was, you know, he, was, he was empowered by that. And so if we'd have gone into that situation before Egypt, I might, I might have I behaved in a different way. You know, uh-huh. because in those days, a lot mm. of folks working with this world, begone, spirit, begone. And I didn't feel that at all. I felt incredible compassion for this soul who had lost mm. his way. And mm. so by going in with that unconditional love, what happened was wonderful and extraordinary. I could see his spirit. We could see his spirit. And there was a tree in this area that was like the mother tree. And as we just bathed him in love, his spirit moved more and more closely to that tree and then literally was embraced by the essence of the tree and his whole spirit was just released. It was, it was wonderful. That's incredible. But it showed me that when we judge, we continue the duality and yet we are discerning. But when we realize that in, you know, the I Ching says in the beginning is the one, the one becomes two, the two becomes that two can often play out in that perspective of light and shadow. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It's when it's taken to extreme. And, and so by, by un, you know, unconditionally loving the wholeness, in that particular instance, it was able to heal that dis-ease and that loss and that loneliness. Mm, that's fascinating. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Where did you write about this? Uh, in the 13th step. At least oh, I think man. I did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I might be telling this story for the yeah, first time. Book I have to get. I'm, I'm naming yeah. no names. I'm naming no names, but I think I did write about it very early on in that okay. book. Yeah, uh, Jude, you note that uh, skepticism is crucial in any scientific investigation and progress, but that it uh, mainstream science rarely has been open-minded about what we're talking about, about the paranormal investigations and it's also, uh, often uh, vehemently oppositional and even hostile towards uh, these realms, or, uh, these concepts. Uh, and that, you say, isn't a viable worldview. 
So how does the cosmic holograph offer a plausible mechanism uh, within which uh, to place the psi phenomena or the paranormal or life after death? Well, it does, because what it's showing, Rob, is the evidence at all scales of existence mm -hmm. across many different fields uh -huh. of that are all pointing in the same direction, mm -hmm. that our universe meaningfully exists and purposefully evolves as a non-locally unified entity in which, therefore, as I said earlier, it knows itself in its wholeness. And, of course, it is innately mindful. You know, mind and consciousness aren't what we have. They are literally what we in the whole world are. Now, mm -hmm. what you, we might not have shared on the last time we were together is that that universal non-locality, I think I mentioned an experiment in 2018 uh, with a group of universities, including MIT. Oh, yeah, you did mention that. Yeah, that were able to non-locally entangle photons of light in their lab, starlight from 600 light years away, and right. light triggered by light from a quasar, very active galactic center, 12.2 billion years ago, which is a cosmological scale. What has happened since then is in late 2022, the Nobel Prize for Physics was given to three researchers, Alan Aspect, um, John Clauser and Anton Zeilinger for their decades-long experimentation on universal non-locality. Hmm. Now, the point hmm. is the Nobel's only <clears throat> given for settled science. Einstein did not get his Nobel for relativity because it was still so contentious. No. He got mm -hmm. it for the photoelectric effect. So the fact that yeah. the Nobel in 2022 was given for experimenters proving, showing that the whole, our whole universe is non-locally unified in this way, which naturally then encompasses all that we're sharing here. Mm -hmm. It's multidimensional. It's innately conscious um, where, you know, archetypal intelligences, ancestral intelligences, our consciousness goes beyond the demise of our body and natural. That's why it's not paranormal, Rob. Is super normal for sure. Oh, Although I get I get some moments down the supermarket, so you know whatever. But um, <laughs> it's super normal. It's not supernatural or paranormal. But the fact that the Nobel was given for this work shows that yeah. it's now settled science. So those that are still clinging to a materialistic separated separation paradigm, that they literally are, you know, falling behind what the evidence is leading mm -hmm. to. And as good scientists. You know, mm -hmm. scepticism's good. Cynicism is not so good. Mm -hmm. And so to follow the evidence wherever it leads, and that's what I write about in The Cosmic Hologram, and it's what I write about in The Story of Gaia. Yeah. So mainstream I science... Have, wait, I have a question. I have a question. <laughs> Go. so your story, Jude, about this entity, yeah. it actually, it, it kind of, it illustrates one of the things you talk about in your book, that love is an actual force. Is it a force like gravity? No. Well, love, if you, it, you know, for me, love is the foundational essence of uh -huh. our universe because, you know, love is all about connectedness. It's all about interdependence. And we know that our universe is innately interrelated, foundationally unified. So, you know, if, if love's about connection, then fear and all these other um, attributes, uh, 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 the perception of separation. So I talk about what I write as being the science of love. And it goes uh -huh. way beyond sort of sense of human love. Wonderful that that is. Right. This is essentially a benevolent living and loving universe mm. that we're speaking of here. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Andrew, personally, I've always felt love and creation to be the same thing. Yeah. I, I agree. I love that, Andrew. And, you know, I, I, I speak a lot. I've been speaking more and more about... You know, the, the the going back to the ancient wisdom of the one becoming differentiated. It isn't separated. It's differentiated as to the two into three and three into 10,000 things. So, you know, throughout the universe, that initiating wholeness differentiated into two and three, we might speak of as being the divine feminine, the divine masculine. But when we bring those together, then the divine child, that third, that uh, essence then 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 emerges and it's an essence of creativity uh -huh. isn't it because when we're creative we're, we're children again you know whatever we're doing yeah we're that's true again. and it's joyous too it's <clears throat> joyous, it's joyous yeah. exactly 
As and if it's not joyous, why the heck are we doing it? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so I do have some physics questions just because I'm eternally curious. So I, I know we've been on spirit and I, I could talk to you for hours on spirit, but there's a few things, just technical things, which I know will be quick answers. Um, you mentioned that uh, the universe, <clears throat> as it's expanding, is flat. I know Lawrence Krauss talked about that a lot. But, but yet, when we look at the mic cosmic microwave background, it appears to be a circle, or it appears that our expanding universe is expanding like a, a circular firework, or if you will. So how is the universe both flat and circular at the same time? Well, flat and circular aren't innately oppositional because you could have a disc, for example, <laughs> right. which is flat and it's circular. But that isn't quite the way it is. The, the reason we talk about the flat geometry of our universe of space-time is if it wasn't flat, E wouldn't equal MC squared. And the reason for that, oh wow, we can go back to our school geometry and uh, hands up for anybody who remembers <laughs> Pythagoras. Yeah. Yay! And, you know, on a right angle triangle, the square on the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides. That is only <laughs> if you if you draw a triangle on a flat piece of paper, yeah, where the inner angles total to 180, yeah? But that's a very special geometry because if you if you turn that paper and you, you sort of either make it concave or convex, the triangle will not have the same number of angles. It will not have 180. It'll have less or it'll have more. So the fact that our Pythagoras is based on flat geometry, essentially. Now, there's a lovely book called um, Y Equals MC Squared, and I think Why It Matters by Professor Brian Cox and Jeff Forshaw. And what they do is they track from um, the, the Pythagorean uh, triangle into space-time, because of course a triangle is just about space. It's about the relationships of the angles and the, the size of the triangle in space, but you can actually track it into space-time. And when you do that, you come out with the, um, it's, it's, a, it's a whole book to do this, but okay. it basically you come out with equals MC squared. If our, the geometry of our universe was not flat, E would not equal MC squared. And if E didn't equal MC squared, we'd be living in a very different universe. And all the, the cosmological evidence um, from, from things like the WMAP probes show that it is indeed flat to, to you know, the, the best uh, limit of our technologies at the moment. Now, when you talk about the cosmic microwave background, um, the reason that you often see that the map of the background, it looks rather like an elliptical rather than a circle, is that's the field view of the of the probe looking around. But what you also see in it are tiny temperature fluctuations. And those temperature fluctuations are often shown on the map in terms of slightly different colors. But those temperature differences uh, from a 2017 experiment analyzing them are shown to be fractal. In other words, they embody the same fractal relationships in terms of temperature differences that we see as fractal patterns literally from the very smallest, you know, atomic scales all the way up to that fulfillment of space time because the cosmic microwave background fills space. It's a relic radiation held over from the very earliest epoch of our universe. So going back to circular, um, a, a sphere, if you think of a, a three-dimensional sphere, and of course we're talking now about a holographic projection of an appearance of space-time, three-dimensional space, one of, of time, but it actually flattens out. A sphere topologically does not have flat space, but a toroid does. And so more and more, it, you know, there are still some wrinkles in this, but it's suggesting <clears throat> that our universe is more toroidal as it expands rather than, if you like, circular or spherical as it expands. Okay. Does that help? Well, now is... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just asking Andrew, does yeah. that shed oh, any light? Okay. It, it, not really. 
it's amazing. But <laughs> I, but still, I can't visualize it. I mean, I can visualize a torus expanding, but you know, when one, but again, it's because I, I did have some a question about the the Big Bang. You know, you mentioned that um, at the beginning of the <laughs> Big Breath, it was hotter than yes, it's ever been. But what was the source of that heat of that energy? what where you know the, because that energy itself must have had a source so i know that in science you're not allowed to ask what was here before the big bang or the big <laughs> and what is the universe expanding into because i i fell into that when i was interviewing um uh that girl maria who whose team actually won the the, the nobel prize at, at cern for for proving the higgs boson um, and I interviewed her and her boyfriend for Question of Spirit. And, um, you know, they just laughed and they said, you're not allowed to ask those <laughs> questions in because the answer can only be conjecture. But I wondered if you had an answer, like where did the energy for that heat come from? How, what there's, was that? There's, there's two things, really, because in a way you have to ask that question. <laughs> if, if you're going to get into a deeper understanding of, of why the universe is as it is. Yeah. So I think it's a legitimate question. I mean, it's very challenging, certainly in the the, the sort of the, 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 you know, the ways we have at the moment. But I think it is legitimate to, to ask why our universe came into being in the way it did. Yeah. And one possibility is that our universe is essentially a white hole emanating from a black hole in an earlier universe and a supermassive. Oh, interesting. So we're talking about a number of ways in which, you know, Roger Penrose has talked about um, conformal geometry as a cosmology, but that's only geometric. We also need the time aspect. So, you know, it's very early days, but it's an important question to be asking, I think, to help deepen our understanding. And can, can, I, is, can, I, can I piggyback off of uh, Andrew's question real quick? Because but just this week I got uh, I got kind of got uh, well, not my mind blown, but I was I just had not considered this in a long time. But so are we talking about are we talking about an expanding universe or oh, or or yeah. or the light switch just came on? But I'm no, sorry. no, we're talking about a universe um, that came that came into being 13.8 billion years ago not as an infinite singularity, but as a finite Planck scale entity, not in incredibly, you know, not in, in randomness or, or, or the chaos of a perceived Big Bang, but as the first moment of an incredibly fine-tuned and ordered Big Breath, so that ever since then, as space has expanded and times flowed, our universe has, you know, been able to incorporate more and more information and therefore evolve from its initial simplicity to ever greater levels of complexity. But what came into being at that point was its energy, matter, and its space-time, or as the appearance of our universe, but also as a holographic manifestation, yes, of, of cosmic mm -hmm. consciousness, okay? So the appearance of energy, matter, and space-time, energy, matter is quantized, space-time not quantized. You raised this point, I think, in a in an email. Um, because, you know, we my best understanding is that space-time is not quantized. It is pixelated, and it is what I call entropic. So, in other words, as time flows forward, space expands, the informational content or entropy of our universe ever increases. And entropy is a really important point because we used to talk about entropy as the energetic microstates of a system, but we can now expand that to the entropy or the informational content of a system. And it makes much more sense when you apply that to the whole universe. <laughs> but going back to Andrew's point about energy, energy can be positive or negative, yes? It can be push-pull, it can be it taking every which way. So, you know, I think it was Krauss wrote uh, uh, The Universe from Nothing, how everything is balanced. So the fact of the high temperature is, is, is an attribute of that balance that's, that's sort of reflected in that particular way. But the importance about the high temperature, because you think the high temperature is incredibly energetic, but the way that the primordial electromagnetic fields ordered it, it is not, you know, rushing around like crazy 
and, and taking a lot of energy to create. Just as when we look at our sun, the surface of our sun has a temperature of about 6,000 degrees Kelvin, okay? If we go outside the, the, the surface of our sun, the temperature is something like in millions, in millions of degrees Kelvin, okay? But because it's so ordered by magnetic fields, it's not sort of, you know, chaotic in that sense or, or you know, dramatically energetic in that sense. But the reason that the high temperature is so crucial is it's called the Planck temperature and it's 10 to the 32 degrees Kelvin. I mean, it's very, very high. <laughs> but the reason for that is our universe began in its lowest entropic state and its highest temperature. As space has expanded and time's flowed ever since, the temperature has dropped as the entropy has increased. And the third law of thermodynamics that I've now restated as a third law of infodynamics is indeed that in a contained system, the temperature and the entropy are inversely proportional. So what that temperature gradient does is it drives the whole cycle of our universe. It's crucial. And so when we dig down to the most fundamental scale of our universe, in which its reality, its appearance comes into being, we find there are four universal constants, the speed of light, gravitational constant, Planck's constant, which is the, 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 the sort of the quantum of action, and Boltzmann's constant, mm. which refers to thermodynamics and infodynamics. From those and temperature, all the ways of describing energy and matter and space-time can be put together in, in formula, really simple formula, just different variations of those constants and those attributes that are the basic pixelation of our universe so the basic reality scale of our universe so it, it literally all fits together when you understand it in this way mm. you don't need any more equations <clears throat> you don't need a blackboard full of equations huh. <laughs> you need the very basics you know newton's three <clears throat> laws of motion do a lot mm. You know, equals MC squared. You know, you've got some really, you've got some incredibly profoundly simple equations that literally are the building blocks, the relational building blocks of the entire appearance of our universe. Uh, Jude, one of our listeners uh, named Devin has a question. Uh, <laughs> if the universe is experiencing accelerated expansion, would time speed up, uh, slow down, go berserk? Uh, would it register on a clock? Would the animal sense it? <laughs> well, for the thank you, Devon. That's a great question. Well, it's been expanding. It's been accelerating it, its expansion. We reckon for the last five billion years. So I think we'd have noticed by now if that was actually happening. But it's really important, and this is, gets pretty sciencey. So we'll probably stop at a point rather than go down the rabbit hole on it. But. Um, Entropy, the nature, the, the, the nature of entropy, which is the informational content of a closed system, entropy has follows an arrow of time. In other words, the entropy of a contained system increases through time. But the point of that is that it means that there is a past, a present, and a future to unfold. But when you look at the way that entropy works implies acceleration okay so velocity or, or constant speed is not of itself entropic if you move at a meter a second you're not really adding entropy but if you're moving at a meter per second per second you're accelerating the past is different from the present and for the future ah. so more and more um, scientists are appreciating that forces of themselves are entropic. You know, um, F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. The more you apply a force to a mass, the more that acceleration continues till you stop that force. So by differentiating from when a force is being applied or when it's not, we have a deeper understanding of the way space and time work. So when we look at our whole universe, this shows is that from its very beginning, first moment of this minute big breath, 
as spaces expanded and times flowed for the whole informational content of our universe, the entropy to continue to increase. The expansion of our universe, the great prediction is it cannot be at a constant velocity. It has to accelerate or decelerate or accelerate again. Mm. Enable that entropic accumulation. And that's what we've seen. That does not mean that universal time itself speeds up or not. It just means that the whole process of the cycle of our universe, because at the Planck scale of time, is constant. It's minute. It's 10 to the minus 44 seconds. But universal time is constant in each Planck scale moment as, as time flows and, and the each Planck scale area of our universe expands. That's the whole story. It doesn't it, mean universal time changes in any way on its 13.8 billion journey from that first moment to this. But in the early days of the universe, t did time move more slowly? No. No? Okay. It's just the process of, no, of, I, of the expansion of space, whether it de accelerates, decelerates, accelerates. Um, it's the acceleration or the deceleration. It doesn't matter which in that it, sense. It's still because it's it's decelerated, but it's still expanding. It's a it's a process. It's a process. I'm sorry. It's a process versus a measurement, right? And I mean, yeah. to some extent, yeah. Well, it is. But even if we were to measure, for example, if we were to go back into Star Wars, you know, galaxy far, far away and a long, long time ago, we'd still be measuring universal time and the Planck scale then as we would now, huh. because it's a it's a, a a natural natural fundamental attribute. Of the appearance of our universe. Hmm. Because I just you you need to dispute some of these articles I've been reading. This article <laughs> I said it says I read an article about how in the early days of the universe time moved more slowly. No, there's no evidence. And I thought, well, we need to ask Jude. Okay. <laughs> there's that there's no evidence for that. <laughs> I mean, I I you know, if there's more evidence that shows it, but I've I've looked at the evidence. You know, I've been doing this stuff for God knows, 66. Yeah. Six years now. Um, you know, if it, I'll follow the evidence. If evidence comes forward that shows that, I'm I'm with you. But uh -huh. I've seen absolutely no evidence. And I read all this stuff Interesting. as well. There's a huge okay. amount of speculation, which is great, but we can't mistake speculation for evidence. <laughs> you know, right. we move from speculation to hypothesis to theory, you know, and, right. and we keep moving and we keep moving. Um, so it's a lot of fun to what I've found over the last few years, and I think this is actually quite potentially problematic, is that, you know, speculation becomes misinformation. Uh -huh. That's not terribly helpful. So um, I have, since I see time is ticking away, I, I have one question <laughs> that I feel is my most important question. So in, in the previous interview I did here, I talked about, um, I've now three times seen what people would call UFOs. So I, you know, you, you don't have to be a believer when you've had an experience, experience yeah, trumps sure. belief. So in my understanding of this, what, the question I formed is, could this reality in some way be defined by a frequency like a radio station we're tuned to, which generates the structures of our dimension as we see in cymatics? And could other dimensions exist right here, right now, as other radio stations exist at the same time, right. but at different frequencies? The reason I ask that is because the three UFOs I saw, and if you go into the MUFON and you research UFO sightings, they basically all have one thing in common. They're all the size of RVs. They're not huge ships built for <laughs> galactic travel. They're small craft built for short trips. So the only way I can figure that out is it must be interdimensional travel. If it is interdimensional travel, how on earth does that work? Um, question. <laughs> I think that's a great, I think it's more than a great question. I think it's yeah. a great insight. Absolutely. Um, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, I've had UFO experiences as well. And, and I suspect Andrew, similar to yours, I had one where a UFO sort of um, appeared, literally appeared in the sky above me as an incredible bright light. Um, and this was sort of um, early-ish morning, about eight o'clock in the morning. And I, it got my attention. 
So I, I sort of had the, the sort of conversation um, and then it literally winked out. And I've had other experiences, but that one was 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 very significant for me. And some years ago, and first of all, you know, what I'm what I'm, you know, showing the evidence for in the cosmic hologram and the story of Gaia is of a multidimensional universe mm -hmm. where this plane, the appearance of its energy, matter, space, time, is 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 a plane um and a very crucial plane, but there are other planes of intelligence and experiences. Mm -hmm. The thing that I found time and time again, though, is whatever phenomena emerge in our universe, in its space-time, do not violate causality. This whole journey of 13.8 billion years, yeah. you know, from that first moment in the past to this presence. So I talk about as being on the bow wave. You know, we know about bow waves. When we see a, a boat or a ship going across a body of water, it has a bow wave. Mm. It has this sort of little sort of fluctuating waves in front of it as it carves its way through the water. And I often use the meta that metaphor as us yeah. being on the bow wave here and now of the potentiality for our universe. Because what that does is although the past is the past and not to be causally, you know, causally violated, the, the, the near future, in a way, is potentizing, which is why I feel that precognition is again a, a natural right. attribute, as as the future pot potentiality and possibilities come into the present. It doesn't mean the laws of physics change; it just means that the exploratory consciousness that is our universe is is coming into this sort of you know individuated self awareness and expression. So, some while ago, I had a, a vision of UFOs as space hoppers. And there's mm, some technology indeed. where they seem, this is the best I can offer at the moment. And I've, there's so much more work to be done on this. And I want a few more conversations with my UFO friends on this. But they seem to be able to, to hop on this bow wave mm. across space, but not through time per se. Huh. What about dimensions? Well, yes, dimensionally, of course, because what they, that's the whole point that Andrew's making is that they come out right. of this dimension they space hop right. yes they space hop on this dimensionality um and then uh. appear and then disappear <clears throat> in ways you know i mean obviously a lot of some of the sightings show they move very fast within this dimension but a lot of experiences like the pair of us have had them literally flick in and flick out well um, we have too we've seen them like that great and exactly and it yeah, may be I mean, stealth, it may be stealth technology but uh -huh. what my vision was suggesting is that it's actually more, it's, it's right. more fundamental than that. I have one uh, other question I want to get in um, before our hour is over. They are continuing uh, to evolve as humans. Can we consciously move this ev uh, evolu our evolution along uh, rather than it just happening at an unconscious level? Oh, good heavens. I mean, I spent yeah. a whole life trying to serve this. <laughs> sure, Rob. Where have you been? <laughs> you know, it's it's waking up. You know, when we're not aware, we're not aware. So how can we, each of us, and, and help to link up and lift up all of us, become more aware? Yeah. You know, that's the key. And, you know, right in the story of Gaia, we see a conscious universe evolving both both through its its appearance and consciously in terms of individuated self-awareness, you know, coming to a point where we can have this conversation. But the point right. of it is that, you know, 99 plus percent of all biological species that have shared this story of Gaia as the planetary mother are now extinct because a point comes in biological evolution where you sort of hit the buffers in a way because the simplicity evolves to complexity, the complexity also means that from a biological perspective, that organism is less flexible, less mm. able to biologically evolve further. And so our potential for evolution isn't a biological potential, but it is a conscious potential. It's how mm. can we wake up? You know, we've been in a paradigm of separation. We've had a dis-ease of separation. How do we wake up to remember we're inseparable? How do we wake up and grow up to become co-evolutionary partners of the evolutionary impulse of our entire universe and planetary home? How do we realize 
that beyond being human beings, we're Gaians. You know, how and that's it. happening. And that's <laughs> happening. That is happening. So for each of us, it seems that both in our own journey, because it begins with us, of course, how can we share this? How can we help and serve? And it's not an imposition. It's an invitation because mm-hmm. it's such an invitation to an incredible adventure of the next steps of what we can potentially evolve to become. My God, I want to come to one of your classes. I was just <laughs> entranced. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't do classes really. I mean, I'm doing, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm doing a humanities team uh, masterclass just now, but you know, I, I do so. Yeah. And, <laughs> no, and, I mean, and I, really, I just and, be spellbound. And well, and really that I'm might sorry, be Jeff, a really good place to, to, to uh, leave it because uh, that sounded <laughs> like a mic drop to me. So, uh, <laughs> no. yeah. So yeah. Uh, I mean, unless yeah. we, we, I mean, technically oh. got five minutes left, but, uh, but yeah, we, we just need to do this again, I think, and let, uh, let you get back to, uh, some Wimbledon. Yeah. And we, we also need to do the <laughs> story I'd of Gaia. Do, I'd love to do it on the story of Gaia. I'd love to have Andrew yeah. as well. As yes, I say, I think, the, I think the, the audio book is due out in the next couple of months. So keep That'd an eye great. But it'd be great maybe later in the year to 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 come together again. There's so much right. more to it. That would be yeah, wonderful. That'd be yeah. great. Okay. Will Thank you, you very much. Wait, will you email us when it's out? To be honest, I I I probably it's easier if you just keep an eye open on Amazon. Okay. If that's okay. okay. I've got so I've got yeah, my bandwidth runneth over at the moment. So. <laughs> Okay. Are you doing any trips that you said, you, like the trip to Egypt? Are you going to do any more trips like that? I, not that I'm aware of, unless I'm called. I mean, I did. Oh, gosh. I was doing 25, 30 trips of, of guiding people. They're wow. in the book. And, but many, many more. But what I'm doing now, actually, I'm more involved now in working with the Unitive Narrative, which I help co-draft for the evolutionary leaders and and working with the United Nations on a unitive wow. approach to all the SDGs, but also working with some incredible leading regenerative economists like John Fullerton, John Elkington, huh. uh, Clugston, Stuart Wallace, others, on how do we develop a unitive economics based on unitive principles that wow. actually that can serve people and planet, you know, beyond you know, beyond even regenerative economics to profoundly, uh-huh. you know, uh, unity and diversity, unity and belonging way of of, of, of uh, a unitive economics. So there's a lot now working. I'm working with that with a lot of folks and hopefully that'll start to become more visible as we go well, through. The- overcoming uh-huh. overcoming greed is an important factor. Well, this is it. Be- you know, it's so obvious, Rob, isn't it? Because we cannot have transformational change within, without a transformational <laughs> worldview. Right. If we're still working off a worldview of separation of materialism, right. we're stuffed. So this is this is our work, isn't it? This is our conscious evolution. This is our service. Yeah. So the more each and all of us can help share this um, as widely as possible, and we have the evidence. This is the for me. This is the game changer. We have the science uh-huh. that converges with universal wisdom teachings to show us this. This is so exciting. I honestly believe the greatest evil in the world right now is the cartel of central banks, their control of money, the World Economic Forum. There's a huge amount of darkness, greed, and the desire to control going Right. On. But you, you know what's really interesting? I, I was part of a, um, a panel on a, a what's called a high-level political forum event at the United Nations on Friday with all of this stuff. And for the first time ever, the United Nations adopted what's called a, a thematic cluster of, of a whole raft of NGOs late last year based on this unitive narrative. First time ever. Huh. And so wow. the work of these, this whole sort of group of folks, these NGOs now, um, is bringing this unitive narrative into policymaking in the United Nations. But the high-level political forum, uh, last this last week was absolutely awash with everybody saying we have to have a transformation in our economics. You know, uh-huh. when you've got nations, the half of their GDP is based on interest payment for debt. Yeah. When you have that level of of of, of sort of inequality, which are all driven 
by dis-ease and a worldview of separation, you know, mm-hmm. if if conflict's a natural outcome of separation, then peace is a natural outcome of wholeness. Right. So this is what I'm working on with so many folks. So watch, not just watch this space, but get involved because <laughs> so much is, is starting to really now say this is the time. Oh, this is exciting. I would love to get involved. How do we do it? Well, um, first of all, share. I mean, what we do at Whole Worldview is, is we serve the understanding, experiencing and embodying of unitive awareness. So that of itself is bringing a lot of this forward. So just share the website link as much as possible. I will mm-hmm. make sure that, you know, as these things move forward, um, we have a, a newsletter that shares this. And, and shares anybody who's doing this work. It's free to everybody. Just sign up for that. And and just be a champion. Just be a champion. What do we sign up, Jude? Oh, okay. go, to, go, to whole world, go to wholeworld-view.org yep. and sign up for the for the newsletter. But look on the resources there. There's the there's the science. There's all the podcasts I do. So this will be on there. I did a podcast, you may not know a guy called Alex Ferrari. He does something called Next Level Soul. We did a podcast um, a month ago. And, you know, I did a podcast with Deepak Chopra at the end of last year, and it had 23,000 views, which is not bad. Wow. But guess how many the one that I've done with Alex has got so far? It's a bit more than (laughs) 23,000. 100,000? Probably. 616. Wow, that is great. I was going to go a million, but okay. Yep. It's getting there. It's getting oh, there. And that's that's counting. So anything we can do to share the word of this and get people to, you know, hear all of this in so many different ways. There's so many different voices, so many different ways, but to realize that this is a tidal wave of the shift. It is going on, and, yes. And we will we will share the link uh, wherever we post uh, this podcast. And uh, and so, Jude, if you uh, if you need to get back to uh, to your uh, your your duty as a uh, as an uh, as a Brit, uh, to, uh, as far as Wimbledon goes, please don't let us keep you. So oh, okay. bless you guys. I'm so grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And Andrew, Again, thank you. Thank you, course. Andrew. We'll do it again. And we'll do it again. Yay, absolutely. And just to say, when you send me the link, we will share it through our super, uh, uh, social media and we will certainly okay. put it on the website um, and share it as widely as possible. Great. Yeah, and John, okay. I need the Thank name you. of that website. I lost my pen. Yep, yep. I'll, 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 I'll get it to you. It'll be in the description. Okay. And so, Jude, if you need to drop off and get back to Wimbledon, and then uh, Andrew, <laughs> Thank we'll, you if so you want to hang on for a second and let people know wow. how they can get in touch with you, okay? <laughs> Thank you, John. Right. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank Until you. The next time. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. I hope so. Yes. Bye for now. Thank Bye. you. I know. Bye. Okay, Andrew. Yep. Yeah, uh, uh, if you want to let people know where they can get in touch can with go. you, and we'll we'll uh, we'll uh, point them to you uh, in the description. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I I'm probably the the mo- you know the I, I'm on Twitter <laughs> as McFly Corp, but I I don't really use Twitter that much. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the website. Yeah, I do. I have two. I have mcfly.com, which is the work website. But, you know, I mean, the the truth of our world, I'm old, I'm white, I'm straight, and I'm a man. (laughs) Nobody in the media wants to employ me. So if you go to my website, you'll see that I haven't actually done any work in the media for three years now since, you know, before COVID. But that's macfly.com, M-A-C-F-L-Y.com. And then my personal website is andrewmcpherson.com, which is my name spelt out, which is M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. 
Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.